Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, the show that looks at where the law has been and where it's going. I'm Mike Madison. I'm a law professor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with 35 years in the legal sector. We've been talking this season about ALSPs, or Alternative Legal Service Providers. To many observers, they're not alternative any longer. They're an established and growing part of the legal sector. But the ALSPs of today aren't simply grown-up versions of the ALSPs of yesterday. How has this sector grown and changed? In this episode, I chat with Mike Morneo, a lawyer who moved first into a business development role in healthcare and then, 15 years ago, joined a tech company building a litigation support practice. He's been in the trenches and grown with the company in its practice as alternative has become mainstream. Take a listen. Mike, it's great to have you on the Future Law Podcast. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. It's good It's good to connect here. Yeah. So let's lead off with what I promised would be kind of the ultimate takeaway question. You've been in this market, what we now call ALSPs, for going on 20 years in different capacities and different roles. And you had a career as a practicing lawyer and in business before that. As we sit here today, end of 2022, what's your forecast? Where is the ALSP market headed? Where is the, the e-discovery and information retrieval market headed for lawyers and for law? Wow, uh, that's that's probably the hundred thousand dollar question. Well, that's all. I put you on the spot right away. <laughs> now that's awesome. You know, I was recruited to join a company called H Five, which uh, most recently was a was acquired by a company called Lighthouse. All the way back in, I think two thousand six. At this point, coming out of a, a position at a company called Innovation Works, where I was doing seed stage investing, and you know, in those days. Like legal tech, at least from my point of view, right, coming at it from litigation was really, you know, did you have summation or concordance in house, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it may have been sophisticated for the time. Certainly looking back, it doesn't feel like it was wildly sophisticated. But, you know, just to give you some context, you know, things like relativity, which is a hosting platform hadn't been invented yet, processing engines like Nuix, which are, you know, pretty pedestrian, plain vanilla these days, they hadn't been invented yet. People weren't talking about law in the context of information retrieval and so many of the other analytical tools that we think about today, Brainspace and others, their founders were probably in grade school or something at the time, right? The practice has changed, I think, as a result of it too, because I get, you know, and this kind of ties into the the notion of alternative legal services and providers and whatnot. You know, so many of the things that when I started practice at Morgan Lewis so many years ago, um, we would get paid for as lawyers. You know, clients have the expectation today that they're going to be handled differently, right? And so they're often handled, you know, by vendors like H5 historically and, and Lighthouse in my case now. It's been a sea change. And, and I think it's I think it's been good for clients. And frankly, you know, given sort of the growth of data and these types of things, I think about myself as a young associate, like I went through bankers boxes, which had 2,500 sheets of paper in them, right? And and you were sort of, you know, ennui with your friends and talking about what you're going to do on Friday night and avoiding paper cuts and this sort of thing. I mean, associates today, they may be faced with, you know, tens of millions of documents, right? And have the same task in front of them. And it's a pretty unsavory task, I think, right? So technology and legal technology, it had to change, and it's it's fantastic that it did change because I think for those folks that are on the front lines providing legal services to their client, you know, they need this leverage and they need the scale. It's a brand new world, right, over the last 20 years. Let's take that foundation and flip the perspective from looking backwards to looking forwards, right? So sea change uh, to the present day, so much has happened in a, in a relatively compressed 
period of time. What does the landscape look like now where you've got many more robust technologies, lots of service providers out there as independent standalone firms, but also lots of law firms that are looking at this space as, frankly, profit centers, right? So a lot of these types of services that are being provided are things that historically law firms looked at as revenue drivers for themselves. So there's always been a little bit of sort of intersection uh, between the service provision and the the incumbent lawyers and a little bit of conflict in that. And so where do you see that going? What drives investment in the sector? What drives the the, the balance of responsibility? What drives decision-making over who gets to do what? Wow. Um, <laughs> That's a $90,000 question, not a $100,000 question. Where to go with that question? Well, there's so many, I'll, I'll just call them buyers, you know, in the market. And again, I'm, you know, I'm really focused on the context of litigation and investigations and those types of things like that. And, you know, if you think about a corporation, you know, you may have a deputy general counsel or general counsel or, or someone responsible for litigation, investigation, those services. And they're really the, you know, the financial buyer and user buyer of these services. They want, whether it's a law firm or a vendor or some combination, they, they really want to be as efficient as possible, right, to stay within budget. But they also want to reduce risk as the beneficiary of those services and make sure, you know, they're finding the key documents that they're looking for and they're getting the information they need, you know, to press or defend, you know, their particular case. You know, they're partnered typically with a law firm, you know, which has a case team in it. And, and they're also user buyers, if you will, and that whatever technology, you know, they're leveraging, I mean, they've got a couple concerns, right? They historically made revenue doing this stuff themselves. And so some of that may be going to a vendor now or a tool provider. They want to make sure that those technologies are accurate and they're finding what they need. They don't want to increase their clients' risk. So, you know, really relying upon something that's tried and true, you know, isn't important to them. And, you know, as, as users of that technology, they're really, you know, they're fixed upon, you know, not only the user interface and how easy is the tool to use or whatever, but is it making it go faster? Am I developing my narrative, you know, more quickly? Am I able to prepare my witness for a deposition that's going to take place Tuesday, we found out, right? And we've got 3 million documents that we need to go through. You know, the ability of those tools and technologies or service providers to identify those documents and do that work is really important. You know, when I joined H5, we had had probably, you know, three or four incredibly large engagements, you know, back at that time. And so it was really wooing to me as someone who was being recruited by the company to like, oh, this is really fantastic. You know, I've read Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. It looks like these guys are in the early adopter stage. I've done review before. I understand the problem they're trying to solve. Now's the time to jump in. It would be like another six or seven years before we really got adoption, right? And I think, you know, in part, that was because law firms were still making a lot of money doing things, you know, the old fashioned way. And corporate clients were still saying, hey, law firm, what do you think we should do? Right? And you can imagine kind of how that played out. Now, fast forward, you know, to the present or even, you know, seven or eight years ago, there was something called predictive coding, you know, which was something that didn't exist when I joined this industry that you know came on the scene and that got rebranded as technology assisted review pretty shortly thereafter and it was really um it was kind of fun, fundamental sea change in the way that both corporate clients thought and what they demanded you know of their law firms and of their case teams right and so they drove they drove quite a bit of that change you know i think about like morgan lewis my old firm which was a fantastic firm it was such an exciting place to practice you know they've gone into the market and and i think as you suggested they've adopted 
you know, a number of these incredible best in breed tools and they built processes around them. And so they effectively have a team that, you know, if you will, is kind of a captured vendor within the law firm that they make available to their clients. And so if they have their druthers, they keep that work and they do that too, right? But there are, you know, a number of other firms that have hybrid models or, you know, really different models. So like I, you know, happen to work a lot with a firm called O'Melveny and Myers, and they look at partnering with a service provider, you know, like H5 historically, now Lighthouse, as differentiating, right? And something they can bring to the client to compete against, you know, my old shop, Morgan Lewis, in, in terms of trying to sort of set out how they, things, they do things differently and how it adds value to the client. And then you have firms that, you know, we may work with, you know, quite a bit, like, you know, Bartlett Beck comes to mind where they're trial lawyers, right? You engage them when you've got something big and you're going to litigation and they have no dog in the review fight. They just want to, you know, most efficiently make sure they have the right documents and information in front of them. So they're going to, you know, take whatever route of information retrieval, you know, best suits the client in the case that they're trying, you know, to defend or bring forth on, on behalf of that client. And, you know, in, in their model, it isn't setting up a bunch of lawyers with a bunch of tools trying to go thing, you know, through through data as quickly as they can, you know, to find what they're looking for. I guess the short answer to your question is, you know, the evolution is really kind of panned out. So there's all sorts of flavors of these things. And some of them are driven by folks that rely upon service providers like H5 historically now Lighthouse, you know, to provide the answers they're looking for. And then there's a lot of providers that, you know, have have learned, you know, various tools and built processes around them because they want to do sort of the work themselves, if you will. So just synthesizing a bit of what I heard you say, it sounds in part like the big open opportunities that you were decoding and diagnosing 15, 16 years ago when you were starting out, a lot of that space has shrunk, right? A lot of that landscape has been occupied. It's got differentiated, different models, different different product and service plans, different needs. There are still opportunities for advancement in terms of incrementally better technology, new tools being deployed, new kind of business models evolving, but the kind of revolutionary introduction of what we now call e-discovery technologies is mostly now done. And it's in that sense, being refined. But I want to maybe sort of push back against my own story a little bit and ask you to talk a little bit about your own career arc. I wonder if you could just talk briefly sort of your own sort of biography. And I ask the question partly because I think our listeners are curious about how people end up in legal tech, how people end up building careers in the ALSP side. And what I've learned through this podcast and otherwise is that there is no standard narrative. Everybody has their own very distinct (laughs) pathway in. And so it's fun to sort of hear people's you know, their moves and their thought processes and, and the moments that thought they thought it was opportune to either stay or go. So I wonder if you just sort of very, very quickly do a, just a, a high level overview of, of where you were and where you are. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm not quick enough, you can you can accelerate me. That'll be that'll be fine. So, yeah, um, you know, I graduated from law school in 1995, started work with uh, what is now K&L Gates and, and quickly went over to a firm called Morgan Lewis. And, you know, perhaps interesting, I was actually a business and finance associate. So I didn't do any litigation and I wasn't involved in investigations and these types of things. So I was, you know, while, while within the law, pretty far afield of where I am today. You know, back in those days, we were working on roll-up IPOs and sitting around with a number of entrepreneurs and hoping to take them from kitchen table to, you know, S1 in public. And, and I thought as I was working late at night, geez, I'd really like to be one of those gals or guys, right? It looks it looks pretty glamorous and and they seem to be doing very well. And you watch these public offerings and I thought, well, how am I going to get that sort of skill set, right? I'm not going to do it necessarily working on the rest one and practicing law and this sort of thing. So I ended up going um, in-house to a company called Automated Healthcare that was acquired 
by a large healthcare distributor called McKesson, which is based on the on the West Coast. And Automated had been acquired a few years prior to my joining, but was still McKesson was very much a holding company at the time. So it was still run in a very, very entrepreneurial manner and had a ton of autonomy. So, you know, frankly, as a young lawyer with a, a family with small children, it was um, it was a pretty safe bet because it was post liquidity and part of a you know at, at the time like a Fortune nine company, but an, an opportunity to get some chops in other functional areas outside of the law, and so that's what I did. To this point, it sounds like a pretty, I have to say, standard or sort of ordinary graduate from law school, go to a law firm, get your get your feet wet, get introduced to transactional lawyering, see that the grass might be a little bit greener on the client side of the table, leave the law firm and, and find sort of an interesting business opportunity in-house. I was hoping to gather, you know, sort of those functional skills that I thought would be necessary to allow me to take an idea into market myself and scale it and grow a team around it, right? And to be that entrepreneur. So that's what I was really up to, you know, and, and I, I spent seven years at McKesson, you know, three and a half of those, I was in a corporate council role. And so I worked with five automation information technology businesses, supporting all their various needs. And, you know, coincidentally, as part of that role, had the opportunity to participate in some really fantastic business development and sales training like Miller Hyman and Wilson Consultative Selling and, and all sorts of things that, um, you know, while I wasn't directly using, I, I certainly was the beneficiary of the knowledge that those trainings afforded. The last three and a half years I was at McKesson, I was responsible for all their merger and acquisition activity and, and forming strategic alliances. And basically, if their engineers weren't building it, it was my responsibility to either go out and acquire it or otherwise source it in through partnering or alliances and these types of things like that. You know, sort of short story, you know, towards the, the end of that process and a stint at a company called Innovation Works, where I did seed stage investing, I received a call you know, from a recruiter for a company called H5. And I'd never heard of H5. I had no idea what they were doing. I was pretty far removed. I probably had worked on review projects and, you know, very early in my career for like six months or so, right? Spent some time doing that stuff, which was primarily review. But when they shared with me the problem that they were solving, I did recall those six months review and said, I understand that, right? As an associate who had to do that, I know why that's challenging. I know the, why this information retrieval company sounds compelling, and, you know, here was an opportunity where someone was saying, we'd like you to come and be the number two sales guy and carry a bag, right? And to do this for the first time in your life, which to me was like, hmm, that's a functional stretch goal of mine, right? Can I do that? Can I, can I actually be successful in sales and to join the company? And so I did and moved to San Francisco for three months, drank from the fire hose, <laughs> as it were, learned you know, pretty quickly in that process that, uh, you know, they weren't quite as far along, perhaps as, um, as I thought, I mean, I think they still thought that they were, but you know, they, they you know, and so I, I would just say for the next, you know, large handful of years, the old adage is, I think, you know, uh, pioneers get the arrows and settlers get the land. And the question is, like, is anyone ever going to settle in this industry, right? Because while you could do something better and quicker and reduce client risk and all those things, if the clients are asking law firms, if they should do it. And the law firms are saying, well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, if, if, if you want, you know, that really chills sort of the commercial opportunity, right, for the vendor in that space. But, you know, halfway through that, as, as I suggested, you know, things really changed, right? And, and I think a number of the other, you know, guests that you have in your show were probably perhaps in the same place in their practice in that, you know, clients were taking more control of spend. They were asking more of their law firms. Law firms all of a sudden, we're looking to differentiate on whether they did these things or didn't do them and how they did them and this sort of thing. And I think that, you know, everyone in the space was really the beneficiary 
of a tide that rose, if you will, right, and and, and carried a number of boats and, and all of a sudden, you know, an industry that had been, you know, kind of just sort of an e-discovery industry, I would call it before. And by e-discovery, I mean, you know, kind of processing and hosting and production and all those sort of litigation support activities, something that had been, you know, arguably a bit more pedestrian, got kind of sexy in terms of, you know, technology and the capabilities of these vendors and, and, and what they could do. So you could rebrand a lot of it, you know, AI comes in and all of a sudden expert systems and all kinds of cool things. I think I almost hinted a little cynicism in your voice there, but I was very cynical when it did, right? Because it's sort of <laughs> literally like four years ago, someone, you know, fixed upon, well, this is artificial intelligence, right? And, you know, well, what is AI, you would ask yourself, but it, it certainly found its way into the branding, didn't it? I mean, everyone was offering artificial intelligence and these types of things like that. It's been really interesting. You know, to answer your question, where is it going? Like, you know, if we had the best sort of you know, horse and wagon and buggy whip, right? We would be like, you know, I think we're there. I can't imagine anything else, right? And then an automobile rolls off the assembly line. You know, I think that there will be change. I think it's kind of hard to conceive of it. I think that, you know, the economics of this industry, though, you know, kind of tell me the change is more likely to appear on the tool side of things, right? Because I think that, you know, law firms would rather continue to make as much revenue on these sort of services as they could. And if they have to cannibalize some of their own revenue, then sort of hand it over to a partner or a vendor or most law firms anyway. And that's not a value judgment. I mean, it's a business model, right? I understand it. And it makes, it makes complete sense. So I want to turn in the last segment of the podcast to something that you've hinted at a couple of times, and I was, you're right, to decode a bit of cynicism in my invoking that kind of the AI branding uh, of the last few years, that I think the sector that H5, now Lighthouse, is in gets stereotyped by lawyers, especially a lot of practicing lawyers, as e-discovery. It sort of slots into the discovery phase or the discovery portion of classic civil litigation, and then it just a service like what Lighthouse provides becomes kind of a make or buy decision, which is what you've referred to. But a couple of points you've referred to this as the information retrieval business or the information services business generally. And I wanted, wondered if you could expand on that a bit. How do you as a vendor, Lighthouse previously H5, how do you conceive of the services that you're providing? How have you sort of refined or expanded or narrowed that you're in the information business? You're in the you're an information search, information provision. You're not just in the discovery business. Is, am I am I interpreting your view accurately? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, right? And I think that's um, primarily why Lighthouse ended up acquiring H5 because we were, you know, I would say a, a fairly rare, you know, a very rare probably asset on the market when the founders decided to make the company available for sale, I think was coveted after by a lot of the players that are pretty much household names, right, in, in, in this industry. And, you know, Lighthouse acquired us. And I have to say Lighthouse, in terms of from a philosophical perspective and what they're trying to accomplish was really just a fantastic fit, right? I mean, Lighthouse isn't about adding more butts in seats and trying to sort of perfect manual review as opposed to shaking up review entirely and leveraging technology to really change the way that review is done. You know, the H5 story isn't a story that is like, you know, an e-discovery story. I mean, the e-discovery story, I think, in this country is, you know, folks used to make paper copies, things became electric, they got into sort of the electric piece of it. And a lot of the same, you know, sort of players and whatnot um, ended up, you know, getting into what we call e-discovery today, right? And that just became automated, et cetera. I mean, H5 came from a very different place. H5 was launched in 1999 when the founders licensed technology from Penn's Computational Linguistics Lab, which became a bench that we called DART internally. And we've invested about $40 million in 
over the years for our super users, which are folks that graduate from places like CMU in Berkeley and, you know, all sorts of other prestigious universities with degrees in linguistics, com- computational linguistics. We have some lawyers on staff, as you might imagine, you know, what, what's commonly called today data scientists and others like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't folks that were sort of, you know, selling copy and getting into electronics and moving up the stream so much as it was this incredible capability uh, being able to go into just, you know, huge amounts of data and with incredible precision and recall, which is sort of the technical term for accuracy. Like I find all the things that I'm looking for and I don't return a lot of false negatives with that, right? So I'm really laser focused and I find everything that I'm going out to look for. That's what we were really focused on. And the company started, it began by working for the Department of Naval Intelligence, right? So that was the first problem that we we set out to solve back when it was a venture funded company you know, looking at things like 9-11 communiques and trying to find terrorist activity and these sort of things. And I think that, you know, the venture crowd that was, you know, our investors at the time and the board said, that's fascinating proof of concept. You've done a great job there, but it doesn't scale well. And what we really need is to replace wildly expensive labor. You know, law is an area that's not inexpensive and having, you know, associates and, you know, I've heard some of the figures on, you know, your recent podcast where people are talking about second years charging $700 an hour or not. I mean, I don't know if that's right or, or wrong, but, you know, no corporate client wants to pay a second year associate to spend hours and hours and hours hunting and pecking using tools that help them read faster to hopefully find the documents that are important to the case, not miss the documents like, for instance, they're going to be very important to the CEO's deposition, right, which is coming up in a week, et cetera. And, you know, frankly, most associates didn't go to law school to do that either. And, you know, from a morale perspective, if a firm can take that off their plate and let them do, you know, what they were trained to do or being trained to do, which is like work up the brief or work up the motion or, you know, take all these good documents or bad documents and characterize them to form our narrative and hand that work to either a tool or to a service provider to do, that's a really good place. I mean, I think it's a good place for the profession. I think it's a good place for law. And I would argue, I mean, we talk about alternative, you know, sort of legal service providers. I don't know that going through 5 million documents to try to find key ones is practicing law. I mean, as you said, I think it is information retrieval, right? And it's a different skill set. And it kind of, you know, ties in the themes that, you know, I've heard on your recent podcast where, and you see law firms are bringing in all these other very specialties and they aren't necessarily lawyers because it does require data scientists. It does require computational linguists to understand, you know, the vernacular of an organization and how accounting speaks and how sales and marketing speaks and how the engineering staff speaks and, and how, you know, organizations speak to each other. Those are all skills that, you know, by and large, you don't learn it law school, right? And, and I don't know that a lot of lawyers are wildly interesting and interested in trying to perform, you know, those skills. And that's, that's created great opportunity, I think, you know, in, in the market for providers, you know, whether they're building tools to help affect that work or actually undertaking the work on behalf of clients. So I wonder about the next frontier, right? So we've been talking extensively about litigation and dispute resolution more broadly, which is where all these tools have been deployed. That's been the use case in the legal sector. And I wonder about other aspects of the legal system. I wonder if there are nascent interests uh, in using some of these super sophisticated computational linguistics and data science techniques and tools 
in other areas. We all know, and I've talked with other people on the podcast about supply chain and smart contracting, for example, right? Enormously complex portfolios uh, of commercial transactions and trying to manage all of that is another area potentially where this stuff could be useful. But I wonder even beyond that, whether there are high, are larger stakes, larger scale you know, transactions or compliance areas where the stakes are sufficiently high, the amount of money at stake is sufficiently large, where it's both cost effective and strategically wise to try to develop the tools to the point where they could actually be effective in sort of client service, uh, either within the firm or on the part of clients themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely the case, Mike. And we've had forays and experience in that area because, I mean, many corporate clients want things behind the firewall, right? They want them within their own organization. They don't, you know, for a whole host of reasons, whether they're, you know, in the EU and they're facing, you know, privacy laws and these types of things, or they simply, you know, don't want bonos, emails flying around, right? You know, someone's kitchen table, this sort of thing. You know, clients are increasingly trying to do things behind the firewall. And that's given rise to an opportunity for for many vendors, including Lighthouse, to build, like we call them, classifiers internally, right? So they're really, you know, relatively bespoke tools and platforms that can be installed within the corporate client to take on some function. And it could be a compliance function, right? It could be you know, a company has a monitorship agreement, you know, based on some sort of behavior it's had in the past. And so they need to watch, you know, the the email of these 60 executives related to these two particular topics. And is there a way to do that in an automated fashion that doesn't involve human reviewers, you know, laying eyes on absolutely everything, right, that, you know, sort of comes off those keyboards. There's just a host of interesting applications. Um, data retention, I mean, is a big one. There's so much data that clients have in legal holds, for instance, right, that may or may not be responsive to, you know, some eventual RFP that they hold for years and years and years that could then become like invoked, you know, by other litigations and other investigations because they're sitting on it and and it makes it challenging to affect, you know, sort of data deletion policies that they may have, you know, at their corporation. And to be able to actually, you know, take a tool or take a process and go in and sort of vet and defensively reduce that data you know, saves clients lots of money. And it, it's 10 years ago, I would have called these things, I mean, you, you probably heard in the market, I mean, you know, it's like, um, you know, people think about things as like vitamins or aspirin, right? And and things that are really painful, you know, sort of get aspirin and there's budget for them and things that are nice to have, you know, they're kind of like vitamins and stuff. And, you know, historically, to some extent, you know, compliance and data retention and these issues were vitamins. And what we're seeing is that, you know, clients have more and more budget to go after those things now and they're becoming more and more in important in industry and in part, you know, for regulatory reasons and, you know, issues of privacy and this type of thing like that. I think it's pretty fascinating. So there's a probably seen, um, you know, and if you haven't, it's worth looking into it. So there's a fellow named Matt Galvin who used to be at uh, AB InBev, right? So the folks that make uh, beer and whatnot. And he had developed an amazing, um, you know, set of technologies internal to that organization to, you know, look for things like internal graft and kickbacks and sort of bad behavior in foreign countries, right? And, and things that, you know, folks shouldn't be doing. And they, they automated that process. And it was, it was incredible. Matt recently went to, um, to work for the DOJ. And, and he's going to be doing, you know, similar things on the government side. So it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a fascinating time in that, like, clients really need to be thinking about these things and thinking about them pretty proactively because the government has made clear that at this point it understands the technologies out there and it's the government's expectation that these sort of programs are in place right and they're holding accountable for that you know whether 
you know, you were kind of on the bleeding edge or you're coming kicking and screaming, I think like everyone's going to be there. Right. And and information retrieval is kind of at the center of all of this. So that's fascinating. And it's a great place to wind up. I just want to make sure everybody listening to the podcast recognizes that we just touched on U2, beer, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's a great global sprint through all of the potential uses of information retrieval technologies and systems uh, in the modern legal environment. And and I think we just scratched the surface. So it's a pleasure to chat with you. So thoughtful and reflective and up to date on all great things. So it's really, really valuable. And uh, I just want to thank you. This has been great. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. And my, you know, my fun's in the back and forth. And hopefully that's fun for the listeners as well. But I had a great time. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. Next time, Dan and I will wrap up this season with a chat about what we've learned about alternative legal service providers and what lies ahead for the Future Law Podcast and the future of law. If you would like to share your thoughts on ALSPs or the future of law, then send us an email at futurelawpodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. Also, if you're enjoying our show, don't hesitate to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Priya Tahirzadeh. Bye for now.